Welcome to Rocking Our Prayers. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, let me present a puzzle. East Asian businesses often go out drinking. Why? Why is this such an important part of corporate culture relative to other world regions? A month ago, I didn't know. Now, after my interviews with people in China and Korea, the answer is very obvious. Collective harmony and hierarchy are strongly idealized across East Asia. Communication is thus implicit and indirect. Conflict aversion and emotional suppression make it harder to learn what someone really thinks. So what's the solution? Well, alcohol. Alcohol reduces people's inhibitions. This promotes social bonding and information sharing. As argued in Edward Slingerland's book, Drunk, it benefits business. But this exact same cognitive shift also elevates risks of sexual abuse. Women may thus prefer to leave early. But by doing so, they miss out on homosocial boozing and schmoozing. Okay, so let's break it down. Let's first talk about communication. Cultures vary in how much they value direct or indirect communication. In a marvellous book, The Culture Map, Erin Mayer helpfully details the global heterogeneity of communication styles. Americans are extremely direct. They say what they think. Brits, I confess, are a little bit more subtle. To be polite, we sugarcoat criticism in ways that can be confusing for outsiders. Japanese are even more indirect. One must read between the lines. So at the far end of the spectrum, you have sort of US, Australia, Canada, the Netherlands. In the middle, you have Brits. And then the other extreme, sort of Japan, Korea, Indonesia, China, Kenya, Saudi Arabia. So the Dutch and Israelis are famously direct. They don't mind confrontation, so usually speak their minds and take no offence. By contrast, East Asians are more likely to value collective harmony. This means that they avoid direct confrontation, so artfully use more subtle and diplomatic language. So if there's a spectrum of confrontational and avoiding confrontation, you've got Israelis on one end, the French, Germans, Russians, and the far extreme is Indonesians, Japanese, Thais, Ghanaians. It's also a spectrum in terms of direct or indirect negative feedback. At one end, you have Israelis, Dutch, Germans, Russians. At the other end, Japanese, Thais, Indonesians. Brits are somewhere in the middle. So communication styles vary significantly, even within Europe. And if one does not understand this cultural heterogeneity, one is likely to misinterpret the indirect English or be offended by the direct Dutch. So Erin May has this fantastic table, which let me, let me share at length. So if the British say, with all due respect, what the British really mean is, well, I think you're wrong. But what the Dutch understand is, he is listening to me. Or well, here's another one. If the British say, perhaps you would think about, or I would suggest, what the British really mean is, this is an order. Do it or be prepared to justify yourself. What the Dutch understand is, think about this idea and do it as if you like. Or well, here's another one. Again, from Erin Mayer. 
Oh, by the way, what the British person means here is, the following criticism is the purpose of this discussion. The Dutch hears, this is not very important. Or if the British say, I was a bit disappointed that... What they really mean is, I am very upset and angry. What the Dutch hear are, it doesn't really matter. Or here's another one. If the British say, very interesting, the British really mean, I don't like it. <laughs> what the Dutch understand is, he is impressed. Or here's another. Um, if the British say, could you consider some other options? What they really mean is, your idea is no good. What the Dutch hear is, he has not yet decided. Or if the Brits say, please think about that some more. What they mean is, this is a bad idea. Do not do it. <laughs> the Dutch person hears, it's a good idea. Keep developing it. <laughs> oh, this, this one is really true. This one is absolutely true. And I do it a lot myself. <laughs> okay. If the British person says, I'm sure it's my fault. What the British person means is, this is not my fault. What the Dutch person hears is, oh, oh, it's his fault. <laughs> I do it myself all the time. This is totally genuine. You know, we don't want to be rude. We don't want to create unnecessary confrontation. So, you know, you humble yourself, you lower yourself, you take some of the blame, you try to be subtle. <laughs> okay, let's have another one. Oh, yeah, this one is, this is the final one. Oh, so, um, if the British person says... That is an original point of view. What they really mean is, your idea is stupid. <laughs> what the Dutch person hears is, he likes my idea. <laughs> See, cultures do vary a lot, right? They vary a huge amount. And you need to understand all these subtle cues. Now, if Brits are somewhere in the middle with our mad language that makes no sense to outsiders... East Asian communication is even more indirect. So one must learn to interpret all those subtle cues. In Korean, this is actually called nunchi. Among other things, that means anticipating others once before they're said out loud. So if you if you imagine four quadrants, you know, uh, uh, you've got sort of explicit as, uh, as one um, axiom, then you've got indirect or negative feedback, and then you've got more sort of implicit communication, and then you've got direct negative feedback. So the, the Dutch would be super, super explicit, super direct negative feedback and take no offence. Whereas the Japanese are the total opposite, indirect negative feedback, very, very implicit. And the Brits are somewhere in the middle. So another layer to this is that East Asian societies are much more hierarchical. So Korean school children typically bow to their teachers. They also use more respectful language when communicating with elders. So Korean adults also abide by this age-based seniority. Uh, you need to work out how old someone is in order to know the right language. And in societies that idealize hierarchy, speaking one's mind is downright impertinent. So whereas the egalitarian Swedes talk very frankly because they regard themselves as a society of equals. So if we, Erin Mayer creates this sort of in a spectrum of hierarchy. So this isn't binaries, right? This is a spectrum. At the one end, you have uh, people in Denmark, the Netherlands, Sweden, who see themselves as a society of equals. At the other side, Japan, Korea, Nigeria is much more marked by age-based seniority and hierarchy. Okay, so in an egalitarian culture, it is okay to disagree with the boss, even in front of others. That's not rude or offensive. 
Whereas in a hierarchical culture, says Mayer, you need to um, you need to defer to the boss's opinion, especially in public. In an egalitarian society, you can you know take action without getting the approval of the boss. Whereas in a hierarchical society, you need to get the boss's approval for every move. Or in an egalitarian society, business people could meet without necessarily matching the the level of hierarchy from each party. But uh, like in a hierarchical society, Mayor says, if you send your boss, they will send their boss. If your boss cancels, their boss may not come, right? So everything needs to be very carefully choreographed for appropriate respect for hierarchy. Uh, Mayor also says that in a hierarchical society, you know, you're not supposed to email or contact someone who is at a different level of hierarchy. It needs to be at the exact same level. So there's a lot of care and, ta- uh, and caution taken in a hierarchical society to respect all those norms. So this collective harmony, conflict aversion and strict hierarchy cumulatively entail extremely delicate use of language. So for reasons of decorum, it may be better to keep one's true feelings suppressed. Now, Korean students told me that in university seminars, they usually avoided conflictual topics like gender or military conscription. If a man is talking with a female friend, he might share his personal experience of conscription, but not necessarily criticize institutionalized discrimination because that's now so divisive. You know, the unfairness of women not having to do conscription. So that keeps the peace, which is valued. So again, if you imagine uh, four quadrants, you've got, you know, some societies that are very confrontational and emotionally expressive, like the Greeks, the Greeks, the Israelis and the French. Spanish also very emotionally expressive. Latin American societies very emotionally expressive, at least in terms of positive emotions. Whereas in the other end of the spectrum, you've got those who avoid confrontation and are emotionally unexpressive, like the Japanese, Koreans, Chinese, okay? But communication is still valued. Of course people want to communicate. Even if direct confrontation is viewed negatively, people still want to talk and share ideas. Uh, When I was in Korea, they described an enormous disjunction between their conversations with friends, which are normal and polite, and online comment boards, which are extremely aggressive, so when posting anonymously, Koreans speak their mind. Huh? So these rules don't apply universally. It's sort of context specific. It's, you know, they're very much the person to person communication. So indirect communication clearly creates a conundrum for the corporate world. If talk is suppressed, how do you build trust and rapport? How do you learn what your colleagues really think and feel? Here is my hypothesis. And as far as I know, this is original. I don't think anyone said it before, but if they have, I, I defer to their wisdom. Okay, so here's my argument. Colleagues go drinking so that they can talk candidly. Uh, I recently interviewed a Chinese businessman, and he explained the importance of corporate drinking. He spoke entirely in Mandarin, and we translated via my Microsoft Translate app. So I quote, uh, so this is our conversation. I said, how do you build trust with a new person? He says, well, you will have a lot of entertainment. Well, why is entertainment important, I asked. Well, if it's a Chinese state-owned enterprise, this is really important. If the leader and the leader invite each other to dinner, they basically have to sing. Singing, drinking and bathing are really important. 
It's not very comfortable, but you have to. If you want to make more money in China, then you basically have to do it. Do women go to entertainment, I asked? And then I meant like women colleagues, but listen to how he interprets it. Usually the leaders of men and men get together and when he goes to karaoke bars, he will definitely find some women. Sing, dance with them, drink wine. There are many cases that the customer did not want to purchase our company's products, he adds, when he was in the state-owned enterprise, but due to drinking, 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 drinking for a long time, the customer finally chose the product from our company. End quote. A Korean software engineer similarly explained that nights out enabled business conversations. He said to me, I usually go with my boss to a meet-it restaurant. Maybe we have a drink together. This is more important than you think. We have dinner two or three times a month. Now, I usually say things that I can't say in the company. Things I can't say officially. For example, perhaps the boss is pushing this business, but the business is not going to go well. And we talk about the direction of the company. So given Korean ideals of respectful hierarchy and non-confrontation, directly voicing disagreement is improper. As I observed, it actually makes other people feel uncomfortable. Alcohol loosens these inhibitions and allows more direct communication. In a culture that values collective harmony, drinking makes business sense. Colleagues go drinking so that they can talk candidly. Okay, freed from their inhibitions, drinkers loosen up. They do things they wouldn't normally do in polite society. This holds for both business conversations and sexual taboos. In Hewun Jong's excellent book, Flowers of Fire, she shares stories of women who are molested by male colleagues on corporate nights out. Of course, none of this is unique to Korea. In UK academia, I certainly know of a case where a male professor had too much to drink and put his hand on the PhD student's thigh. Work colleagues may also hire entertainment. A Korean professor told me that her colleagues once went out for barbecue and then onto a bar. When she arrived later, she found them with an adoring waitress. They brought her in from outside. Horrified and and uncomfortable, she probably left. Women who drink may also be blamed for assault. In Japan, Shiori Ito went out for a dinner with a man who offered to help her get a job. He drugged and raped her. Later, she spoke out publicly, but because they had been drinking, the Japanese public was not sympathetic. A Japanese economist explained to me. She said, she spoke in front of everyone. The backlash she received was pretty severe. You got drunk with this guy, so what do you expect? You invited this. And some women said, you should not have gone out. She went through this terrible backlash. Okay. So in societies where direct communication is widely disliked, drinking is the one time in which people are sufficiently free to share their true thoughts and feelings. Leaving early comes with costs. One forfeits collegial bonding and information sharing. Workers must then choose between comfort, safety, and career progression. Men also face this trade-off, like the Chinese businessman I mentioned earlier. They may dislike corporate drinking and heterosexual entertainment. But, you know, on the balance of probabilities, they're far less likely to be sexually harassed by superiors or feel quite so uncomfortable with other men ogling pretty waitresses. So both men and women face a trade-off. 
as a woman from Nanjing explained to me, and I quote, My friend in the pet industry says you have to drink a lot to, break, to build trust with men in the business. But it's not nice. They trust people when they're drunk. Okay, now here's a question. Why? Why don't women push for a more inclusive work culture? Well, in societies that idealize collective harmony, challenging superiors can be deeply offensive. When chatting to two professionals in Seoul, I introduced a little role play, which you heard if you listened to my previous podcast on collective harmony. In this hypothetical company meeting, I very politely put up my hand and said, I would like to propose that we end our company drinking culture. When people drink, they make mistakes, do things inadvertently, which can make others uncomfortable. I spoke very softly and gently. That was me trying to be very placid. But my Korean friends were shocked. Sanhee grimaced and said, It lacks nunchi. Minjun, her male friend, was puzzled. He said, and I quote, I would be amazed. I mean this positively, but why is that person imposing their views on others? Why don't they just drop out? He said, using Microsoft Translate. So to ease their discomfort, I, I suggested a more sympathetic story. Okay, so let's suppose her boss was drunk and put his hand on her thigh. She doesn't want to confront her boss, but wants to solve it indirectly. San He was still displeased. And remember, this is a woman who totally supports gender equality. You know, she isn't like some misogynist male boss. She's a woman at a workplace dealing with inequalities every day. But she just didn't like the confrontation. She said, we care about the opinions of others. Okay, so now here is a question. Does corporate drinking contribute to sexist discrimination. So let me present what I think is a logical argument. See if you disagree. But and I'd like to see this tested empirically. So, number one, if something is fundamental to business success, it is rational to hire and promote people with relevant skills. Drinking is central for many East Asian firms. Men may be better drinking buddies. If they're more willing to partake and collectively enjoy the entertainment, they build up rapport business acumen, and insider knowledge. Men may also be stereotyped as better drinking buddies. So, given those four premises, I wonder if reliance on corporate drinking encourages an employer preference for men. On China's uh, social media app, Little Red Book, women have have reported this exact bias. The screenshot... um, in my substack shows an example of a woman saying that a company came to recruit at her university and they explicitly preferred a man who failed four courses over a woman. And a guy said they only wanted men who can drink because drinking is part of business deals. So I suggest that in societies with ideals of hierarchy, non-confrontation, indirect communication and collective harmony, it is very impolite to speak your mind. So drinking provides a very valuable business opportunity within and across firms. People loosen up, share their feelings and build rapport. But alcohol consumption also comes with side effects. When people loosen up, they may be more sexually forward and make advances, which are not necessarily reciprocated. Seeing this, women may prefer to leave early, especially because they could be blamed for that impropriety. So in a trade-off between comfort and career progression, they may choose the former. 
comfort, safety. So that's an untested hypothesis. You know, I, I don't claim that that's, that that's truth. I'm just saying it's a possibility. But I wonder if companies see men as more productive workers because they are better drinking buddies. Because they can communicate, right? So what's the solution? Well, here's just one idea. You know, I don't really believe that this you could change this, but this is the, the lever of change that would need to happen. If schools and firms explicitly encouraged more direct communication, as does happen in many international Asian firm, uh, firms, then maybe alcohol will be made redundant. If you change the communication, if people can speak openly and honestly, then alcohol isn't needed. So that is the sort of trade-off between comfort and collective harmony, which, which may impede uh, women's upward career progression. And that's relevant because Japan and Korea have the largest gender pay gaps in the OECD. And as China has become increasingly reliant on Guangxi, that is social connections, its gender pay gap has simultaneously increased. So I would love someone to test this empirically. I have no idea how you'd do that. But if you are such a brilliant boffin, please let me know. Okay, I need to go pack because today I'm flying to New York. So my friends on the East Coast, come and say hello. Wishing you all the very best. Um, hope you're enjoying your lovely weekend. Thank you.